See, I knew the answer to this before I asked it, but I asked it anyway. <laughs> the correct answer is not. <laughs> Why do you say that? I just really like Illmatic, and I think well, I, this is this is what we were talking about earlier. But um, I think either Illmatic or Ready to Die both are great soundtracks that really encompass what you know being a scientist is actually really all about. There's a lot of hustle to it, and I don't know if people really appreciate that. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of Major Revisions. With me as always is Grace Wilkinson, assistant professor at Iowa State University. Hello, Grace. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Doing well. And also, itinerant postdoc, John Walter. Howdy, John. Hey, Jeff. How's it going? It's going. I'm uh, calling, talking to you guys from the basement of Clark Hall. Ironically, I think I had pitched at one point doing time management or work-life balance as today's episode, and I'm failing miserably at both. <laughs> so instead, we're going to do something else. Um, <laughs> but. I think the topic that we wanted to discuss today was getting paid, uh, but getting paid for our science. Grantsmanship. Is that sexist because there's a man part in the middle of it, or is that... Um, that's possible. I'm just curious. I can only okay, speak for me. I'm not offended. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. How would you say it? Grant's personship? If somebody knows, please let us know. Yeah, I'm curious now. Okay. Can we just say Grant writing? So, Grace, you just came back. Yeah, there Grant we go. Writing. That okay. gets rid of... What is, that's a microaggression, correct? Okay. But, but is it Grant writing, or are you just talking about writing the grants and never actually getting them? It wouldn't Grant's personship consider the whole process from like writing the grant to reviewing the grant to receiving the grant and then like spending it like popping bottles <laughs> that, thank you. all right so we know who the two english yes, majors awards administration this... <laughs> awards administration is now referred to as popping bottles <laughs> we're gonna make a whole like grants playlist actually from early 90s hip-hop <laughs> that's gonna go from like the grant writing process all the way through to popping bottles. Yes. Fantastic. Or if you don't get it, it's going to be like that really sad, like prescient track on Ready to Die, where like, um, uh, uh, what's his name, the one that everyone hates, Pete Diddy's like yelling like Biggie, Biggie, no! And you got the weird gunshots and everything in the background. Like that's yeah, never. <laughs> so Grace, you just went to a, I assume an NSF workshop. Is that what it was? Like on Grant's personship? Yeah. Grant writing. It was. So it was an NSF. They have grants conferences twice a year, um, which this isn't something that I knew about until my college emailed and said, hey, you should go to this. Um, <laughs> but I'm really glad that they did. It turned out to be really useful. So um, if I, before I forget to mention this, if after this discussion you decide, wow, that sounds like a really useful thing because I do a terrible job of summarizing it, um, you should definitely go to one. Be aware that they open up registration usually at noon on a given day, and it is closed by 1 p.m. because they are filled. So be Whoa. be ready to, if you want to do it, to get ready to do that. Go get on their mailing list. Um, Jesus, everything there is selective. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's insane. Okay. Uh, yeah, so this was a conference. It was a, two days in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, and it was assistant professors, um, people who are grant specialists at universities. There were even some people who are grant specialists for their scientific societies that were there that work on writing grants to NSF for getting things. Um, and I thought there was also, it was really great, there was a cool mixture of people that were not, it wasn't just R1 institutions. Um, there was a lot of two-year degree um, institutions that were represented there, as well as um, maybe only master's only or undergraduate only institutions as well. So that was really nice. cool to get to interact with those folks and see how their process differs a little bit from what I've been learning about the process at ISU. Um, yeah, so it was it was a two day sort of baptism in how NSF works. Um, <laughs> there were a ton of folks there from NSF, including a representative from each one of the directorates. So if you don't speak NSFE's directorates are like the major umbrella groups such as biology, engineering, and then under that there are um, 
different programs, or sometimes uh, they're called clusters. In fact, in biology, we have programs and clusters just to make it more confusing. Um, and so then those are the things like uh, sort of my NSF quote-unquote home would be DEB, or the Division of Environmental Biology, and that's a program under the Biology Directorate. So that was probably the first thing that got cleared up for me while I was there, because I've never really understood the way that NSF was structured. Um, so that was yeah. helpful. Uh, but one of the things that, yeah, so they went through everything from the, this is how NSF is structured, to the, this is how, what you should be doing when you're putting your proposals in and tips for being successful, to how the merit review process at NSF works, and then all the way through getting your award in post-award management, um, or popping bottles, as we're now calling it. <laughs> um, so yeah, so we can probably start there, and then probably one of the other things we can talk about, too, is there's a lot of different kinds of NSF grants that aren't just sort of the basic apply-to-your-program once-a-year things, uh, if you guys want to talk about those as well. So things like rapids, eagers, goalies, raises, these are all different grant types that we can discuss, too, that I was learning a lot about. But... Um, yeah. Well, that's cool. I'm actually working off an eager right now, which is the, um, God, I forgot what eager even stands for. What is it? Early, early concept grants for experimental research. Yep. Early concept grants for experimental research. Yeah. Um, those are really cool. Um, I like those cause the, the idea is it's kind of like this, you don't get a lot of money. Right. And then you just, it's for potentially high impact research to meant to feed into something else. Um, what else did they, did you learn about those? Yeah, so Eagers, uh, the thing that they really stressed about those was that they're untested ideas, but potentially very transformative. And so what they are is they're like $300,000 for no more than two years. Mm -hmm. um, they can be in response to a natural event. Uh, that's a little bit more like rapids, but they can be in response to that. And uh, one of the ways that they talked about these is, like, let's say you've put in a proposal and the panel reviews it well, but in the panel summary and the reviews you get back, it's like, yeah, this is cool, but it's pretty risky. So we're not willing to risk mm. this more than a half million dollars on this person. And so it's a smaller grant. You have the concept. You make the case. And these don't necessarily go to panels. They can be reviewed internally just by the program officers themselves. Um, so I think that was definitely one thing that they really – really pushed home was always feel free to contact your program officers. Um, ask early, ask often was like the phrase that they had at the bottom of every slide. That's good to hear. We've had like, a, you know, a lot of good contact with our program officer and she's wonderful and she's great. We've talked to her at like several meetings now. Um, and you know, my, the PI on the project, like he's talks to her like all the time. And, um, they're really nice people. So yeah. I, mean, I don't think you're scared of them. And aren't they like, you could probably speak to this more than, than I would know, but um, aren't they usually just senior scientists who take a couple years, like take a turn in DC, like working, how do you, like, who are they? Yeah, they're not even senior scientists. Um, they, they can be as well as even mid-career scientists that are pretty established okay. in their field that take a, a rotation a couple of years and go and work in DC and, and serve the, the agency in that way. Um, which I think is what makes them unique from some other federal agencies that do funding, where there's sort of just a group of people that are there and they bring in a panel. They're not necessarily as okay. active researchers. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think um, NSFDEB at least does have some full-time program officers, but yeah, a lot of them are also on rotation like that, like you described. Yeah, and the people that you're interacting with a lot tend to be in those rotational positions um so have you guys interacted with program officers before like have you sought them out or talked to them at meetings or i have i think it's um i remember when i was looking at postdocs like talking to the one of the dev people our program officers about the whole nsf postdoc program and kind of how that works um and like i said we talked to you know our post our program officer on the project we're working on in the eager project so yeah john what about you yeah, I mean, I've I've met um, a couple just from being at meetings and stuff like that, not necessarily seeking them out because they're program officers, but just because, you know, they're there and we have a connection in common and, um, you know, or something like that. Um, That's really cool. Yeah. I mean, they're, 
I bet they get schmoozed a lot. I guess, you know. Yeah. Like, can you imagine being like a program officer at like a large meeting, like you know, was it Aslo or AGU or something, and you just want to go to the bar, maybe and grab a beer. <laughs> You probably don't have to pay for any drinks, actually, now to come to think of it. So there's probably perks. Probably. Although maybe as federal employees, maybe there's not. They have to say no. Yeah, you're not. <laughs> yeah, they're not getting reimbursed on that anyway. Yeah. But so I think one of the things that was a takeaway for me from this was um, getting to interact with a lot of these program officers this past couple of days is they all said, first and foremost, they are available. Talk to them. Um, but when you do, not necessarily in a don't waste our time, but make it the most advantageous <laughs> meeting. And so um, mm -hmm. they recommended creating a one pager. So if you have an idea for a grant, and especially if it's something that you're not mm -hmm. sure, is this the appropriate place to be applying for the pr appropriate program or solicitation that's gone out? They said, you know, write up a one pager, send it to us, and then schedule the phone call for a week later. And we will have read it. We might have even shopped it around to a couple of our other fellow program officers. And I'll be able to give you really good feedback about that. And I cool. thought that was interesting. I hadn't really yeah. thought about that. But that's and having that written one pager and sending it. Yeah. They really encourage it's that. It's kind of like the, like the elevator speech version of your, your grant, right? Yeah. Huh. Um, I guess before we talk about the process, do you want to go... So there's, what are the other types of major awards, right? There's RAPIDS and there's macro systems, but what else are there? Right, so RAPIDS are rapid response to research. Um, so this is when there's a severe urgency for quick research. And so you can't necessarily wait for the six months, you know, the deadline for the grant and then the six months to hear back. You need to respond now. So um, I think some people have had rapid grants in response to things like the Flint, Michigan water crisis. Um, mm -hmm. I, large hurricanes they can be either natural disasters or anthropogenic um and another thing that they really stressed was that it doesn't have to be a natural disaster i think as people who study the environment we tend to think about natural disaster as needing rapid response for research <laughs> yeah um but it can also be let's say equipment access like this piece of equipment that is extremely vital to answering this question is only going to be available to outside researchers to use for two months or something. You need to get okay. there. That's also another reason to apply for rapid funding. But those are small. Those are only $100,000. It's one year. It's only a five-page proposal, and it's reviewed by the program officer. So it doesn't go to panel. Yeah, we had one here for the fire in Shenandoah National Park a couple of years ago to do look at mercury export. Um, so those are great. Like it was enough to fund like a undergraduate um, thesis and a couple papers. Oh, that's fantastic! So, nice. Yeah. So yeah, they're great, great. Yeah. Little guys. I've, I've been coming to realize how um, little a hundred thousand dollars is in the scientific enterprise. It's, yeah, it's so depressing. It really is, especially when overheads <laughs> involved, because um, that's really just fifty thousand dollars, and then you can just start slicing the yeah. pie down from there. So. Um, but they are they are really useful when there's those sorts of events. Making a note to come back to overhead. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then they also talked about raise grants, which are interdisciplinary research, um, bold interdisciplinary ideas where the scientific ideas are outside of the scope of one program. Um, so my understanding is this is when you have really when you're trying to be collaborative and be on the edge, bringing multiple together multiple programs or even multiple directorates together um, and the reason why this is a special category is because they can be longer they can be up to a million dollars in five years as opposed to the usual three year for sort of a generic program solicitation um, and you also have you have to get involved again with those program officers they have to okay it before you even put it in cool um, so I guess the last one that I'll probably yeah of that. I've never heard of that. I, yeah, I hadn't heard of that one. And this next one, too, goalies, I had not heard of. So goalies, uh, sorry, I don't remember the acronym, are about um, being an, uh, having an academic liaison with industry. So essentially you partner with some, you have some industry partner, and they don't get to receive money on the grant. But perhaps their 
mentoring one of your students or they're involved with data collection in some way, but the goal of them is to stimulate, stimulate collaboration between academia and industry and allows your students to conduct research and gain experience in an industrial setting. Which Grant opportunities for academic liaison with industry. Thank you. So you basically had it. Yeah. That's what a goalie is. <laughs> yes. So I, I had never heard of that before. And I suppose maybe they're really popular in engineering. But there's maybe, some possibility yeah. there in DEB as well, I think. So, yeah, there's that. <laughs> um, and then I guess you had talked about macro systems, right, Jeff? You mentioned yeah. that. So that's what's called an emerging frontier. And those mm -hmm. groups of solicitations, like I think the early neon science is also an emerging frontier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what we're under right now. Yeah. Um, and so that's, those are also special solicitations that can come out. So I think, yeah, I think there must be other ones for biology, but the two that, that impact maybe ecologists most are the, that macro systems and the early neon. Yeah, and early neon is referring to basically just working with neon, the National Ecological Observation Network. And so they have a bunch of uh, kind of projects related to that. Um, that was a very strange noise. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I think that was my cat. <laughs> oh, no, it's okay. I was like, what is that noise? It's weird. It's, it's usually loud where I am, and where I am now is, like, deathly quiet, so I can hear everything. It freaks me out. Um yeah, Macrosystems is like the publisher's clearinghouse kind of like grant compared, I think, to the other ones, it seems like. And at least the amount of money and time that you can get out of that compared to like some of the other ones. Yeah. Uh, so, Grace, you mentioned overhead. You want to go give us a detailed, excruciating, agonizing definition of overhead? Because <laughs> when I found out about overhead, I was... Was, I don't know, it was one of the saddest days I've ever had, actually. Oh, no. Well, do you or John want to take that? John, one? you want to go for it, John. I'm still a little sad. Yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> if, you're not, if you're not aware of this already, uh, anytime you get an external grant, the university will charge an often exorbitant fraction of that grant. Um <laughs> uh, Ostensibly to do things like maintain buildings and, you know, upkeep on facilities and um, pay for, you know, the people who administer grants and things like that. Um, TA ships? Are TA ships, do TA ships yeah. come off of overhead? I, I think it becomes a part of the, in, in some institutions, it can become a part of the departmental flow through. Okay. So those dollars come into the mm -hmm. university, and, and then, you know, if your department is funding TAs and the tuition out of it, that could potentially be a part of it in the accounting. Okay. Well, that's actually a little bit reassuring. But these, these range fairly significantly. Like, I don't remember what the low end is, but I know the high end, I want to say, is in, like, the 60s, like 60%. Yeah. So um, for some universities, every institution has a negotiated rate with the federal government for their overhead. And if your institution doesn't, then you have to. Um, but otherwise, there's a default rate. I think it's 10 percent. Um, but yeah, this you have to adhere to this negotiated rate or otherwise you need a really, really good reason why not. But one of the things they do is if you're working not on campus, so let's say at a field station almost exclusively, then they'll charge a much lower overhead, like only 25%, I think, was UVA's. Maybe it was 30. So that's nice. That is nice. They're yeah, recognizing mostly. that, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think... Um, so the range is 20 to 85% from a Nature Review article. The highest um, in 2013 was 103%. Wow. What? Yeah, that was Boston Biomedical Research Institute in Waterton, Massachusetts, which later, under financial duress, closed its doors. Wow. That was a negotiate. That was a negotiated rate with NIH. Oh probably, my goodness. So. Yeah. So anyway, go ahead, John. But eighty-five percent still pretty freaking high. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, I've 
I've seen in institutions where I've been rates in the 50s, and that's still a big chunk of change. You know, if you're trying to, you know, budget a, you know, $30,000 a year for, you know, a graduate student, it's going to cost you 45. You know, it, it's just kind of, yeah. you know, I mean, it, it just, it's a lot. Um, and it adds a lot and it does, it, I mean, it serves an important function, but you know, I don't, yeah, I'll I mean, say, you got to keep the lights on, you know, you got to pay for all the stuff in the building. It's just, it just, it's depressing. Like Chris, like you said, you get a hundred thousand dollars and then 50 of it's gone. And then if you want to have a student on a project, you know, you said it's $30,000, you get one year out of that, you got 20,000. I mean, it just goes down. It's like, it's like when you get your first paycheck, right? From like your first real job and you're like, oh, taxes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, like I knew about this in an abstract kind of form, but this is real. Yeah. So we, we prepare is. our kids early, actually, whenever they get like gifts, like money for something for whatever, we, they, we make them put half of it into their savings account. So they already kind of feel that. So they're used to it. So it's, good. it's a good we way tell to do it's it. For the, it's for the greater good. So I can't speak to other institutions. Maybe you guys can let me know like what was happening where you're at. But here at Iowa, we get a portion of that overhead back in what's called a PI incentive account. And these are dollars that can Ooh. stay with us longer than the grant. Um, and they are unrestricted. I mean, they're restricted in the sense that they have to be spent with, you know, reason, using the principles of reasonableness and things. Like, we can't go popping <laughs> bottles, but I don't Not have to... literally s- popping right. bottles. <laughs> but, you know, if I want to use it to pay for someone to go to a conference in five years, you can build those dollars up. Is that's that cool. something that you have that you know of at, like, VCU or at Kansas or wherever? I haven't heard of that, yeah. but... Um... I haven't been successful at getting a grant that we had to pay overhead on. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I haven't, haven't dealt with that. Um, yeah. Stuff that I've been on have been, you know, fellowships and things like that, where oftentimes they have a special cap on overhead rates. Like you can get a certain fraction of, um, you know, of the grant that's specified in advance or just a, a lump sum that goes to the university that accompanies whatever, you know, budget is awarded to you. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Fellowships and things like that do tend to be special cases when it comes to overhead. Yep. So when you guys are like, one of the pieces of advice that I've gotten often is that when you start, you sit down and you're going to write a grant, the first thing you should do is write your budget. Not, in fact, the grant. Have you heard this before? I haven't, but my science is usually a really different style from your science. If that makes sense. No, that's true. It, 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 uh, different types of resource asks. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. So what is your approach when you start writing a grant? Um, I usually, you know, well, I usually start with the science. You know, I start with coming up with an idea and, um, you know, trying to figure out a way to sell it in a way that I think will fit with the parameters of the call and what a funding agency um, or organization is interested in and has funded in the past. And th- there's some consideration of yeah. budget, right? Like, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to know what the parameters are, um, and the size of a, of a normal award for that program before I set out to write it, you know? Yeah. I think it does impact the kind of it, it the science you propose is limited by if there's a cap on the dollars you can ask for. Definitely. Or what you think is actually reasonable to ask for. Yeah. yeah, that definitely. So, I mean, in that way, you are considering budget kind of from the outset. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just not, 
explicitly writing down what do I need to do to do this project because I pretty much, you know, most of the stuff that I do, I don't have, you know, supplies. Um, I just have personnel costs and travel and computing resources. Sure. How about you, Jeff? I think Jeff may have... It's possible that Jeff's no longer with us. I mean, not, yeah. in, not in a permanent kind of way, but a, in a, right. you know, his internet connection died kind of way. <laughs> well, hopefully he'll join us again. Um, you know, you mentioned, John, talking about how, uh, whether or not the, you, you think about the solicitation and whether or not it would be competitive there in, for whatever the solicitation is and whatnot, the work that you're proposing um, and I think that was something, again, that they focused a lot on was actually looking at that solicitation and deciding if it's actually appropriate. So one of the things they, um, I guess two things. First is is one of the program officers made the comment, people were talking about funding rates and how sort of abysmal those have become recently. Okay, over the past number of years. And the program officer said, yeah, but if your proposal doesn't actually fit within the call, then your funding rate's going to be 0% every time. Mm -hmm. So, which to me sort of indicated that maybe there is some, um, you know, we, we are panicked. We all need dollars to do our work. We need to support the people that we have in our, our laboratories and things like that. And there can be this sense of panic. And maybe that leads um, people, especially young scientists, to apply broadly everywhere, even if it doesn't make sense. Sure, yeah. And so that's kind of, I thought maybe that, that comment was born out of that a little bit. Like, hey, no, really be thoughtful, you know, about whether or not this works. And I think, again, then it went back to, and call your program officer. If you have doubts, call. Mm -hmm. Talk to them. They, they might be able to actually help guide you in that regard. Um, yeah. So aside from, you know, having those conversations, what are things that you do to try and make sure that, you're doing, you're proposing things that are relevant to the call and, you know, are there specific, you know, keywords that you look for or? Yeah. In fact, I go back to that solicitation and I pull out those key phrases. Um, so in a solicitation, like there might be something about like projects funded here will, and then often there's a laundry list of like five to seven things, right? because it could possibly include those things. And I use those as brainstorming templates so that I can start actually, um, you know, I have the idea of the science that I want to do and I think it fits pretty well, but when I'm actually going to phrase it and phrase the questions and frame them, I make sure that I'm using those as the keywords that I'm jumping off of so that it's really obvious to the reviewer. Um, like having done some ad hoc reviews for NSF, you know, you're given a reviewer template and these are the things that you are asked to comment on. And so having done that now, now I know, oh, hey, for my NSF grants, I want to make it really obvious for the reviewer. Like, hey, I know you have to answer this question. Mm -hmm. And here I've pretty much taken the wording of that question and put it as an answer right here. And really just trying to be a guidepost because reviewers are reading a ton of proposals. Yeah, I was so just going to mention that. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think on average, if you're on a panel, it's usually 15 to 20. That's right. no and small these, feat. You know, and, and these are going to be things that are at least somewhat tangential to your specific research area and specialization. So, yeah, I think that having those, um, having those guideposts is really key. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess one thing I did mention that I said I had done some ad hoc reviewing, the merit review process, and you can look this up on NSF's guidelines. Um, the merit review process can be twofold. Um, the program officer can choose to solicit ad hoc or outside reviews. Um, and this could be because they really want somebody who's an expert on, say, the specific method or a specific part of the proposal that they, they know they're not going to have those expertise necessarily on the panel. And so they solicit an ad hoc or an outside reviewer. 
Um, and usually those tend to be one-offs. You know, you, you maybe get one or two around the time of panel time if you're not on the panel, but there's that. And then there's also serving on the panel, um, which means that you are given a number of proposals beforehand. You're asked to read through all of them, write reviews, and then you come together as a group and discuss them. And probably NSF merit review panels merit their own episode within themselves. Uh, I think that'd be a good opportunity to have a guest on to discuss those. Yeah, I think it would be too. Uh, (laughs) Because they, yeah, they're kind of a beast within themselves. So, um, hey, is Jeff back with us? Uh, So UVA's internet, including the uh, hardwired stuff, is currently down. So Jeff, Jeff is going to keep trying to get back in, but, um, if not, we're just going to go on without him and, uh, miss his presence for the time being. Yeah, very much. Um, yeah. So, you know, and I guess another one of the things we talked about proposal fit and whether or not you should propose, in a specific program or in response to a certain solicitation. Um, and I think this came up most when they, they saved the panel for the career awards until the very end, which obviously was smart because they wanted all the professors to stay in the room. Um, but so if you're not sure what a career award is, um, a career award is an award for um, pre-tenured professors in academia and it's a grant that's written not only for your research, but also education. And so, and the key thing is how you blend those two together, your education and your research. Um, and so, and that's really key. They have to be blended, integrated. I think I heard every synonym of that word during this, this part of the workshop. <laughs> those two things have to go together. Um, so, yeah, do you know much about career awards, John? Have you heard about these? Um, I've heard about them. I don't know a whole heck of a lot, though, to be honest. Yeah, so they're they're big chunks of change. They're also a lot of work, um, but they're single PI grants, which is not necessarily something that's very common these days. Getting single, going for or getting single PI grants. Yeah, um, that's true. Yeah, it, you know, a lot of work. I think the nature of what we do and the size of the science that that people want to do these days in general tends to be multiple PI collaborative research. So that's, that's what makes it a little different. Um, but yeah, so these, these career grants have to be really integrate your research and your education in a synergistic way. Um, and it doesn't have to be education just at the undergraduate level, or it doesn't mean you have to go into a kindergarten classroom. Um, you know, it could be lots of different kinds of education. Uh, yeah, like Um, Maybe working with your extension office if you're at a land-grant institution and that sort of education. That's a possibility, I think, as well. But these are um, generally seen as a really prestigious award. They actually pick for the, oh, I'm going to mess this up, the presidential, there's some presidential science education early career award. I think it's called the Peace Award. They actually pick, NSF picks their nominees out of their career awardees every year. So that's, it's really seen as sort of like this prestigious thing. So you'd say, okay, well, that's a good, I want to go after that. That's a good chunk of change. But one of the things they talked about is it's not right for everybody. I, first and foremost, if you're a research professor and you don't teach at all, might not be for you. Yeah. Um, but also it can be hard, depending on the science that you're doing, I think sometimes, to really integrate your research with your education. Have you thought about that much in what you're doing, John? Um, I have it. Well, one of the reasons that I have though, is because something that I really like doing is, um, teaching people about methods and models and, um, and coding and, and things like that. And so since that's a big part of my research, I think that, um, there are some, you know, natural, but not necessarily super creative ways to try and bring that into an academic education setting and probably if i thought harder about it some creative ways to um to do that in in other settings or um, do something that is a little bit more innovative in the classroom 
but you know, step, steps at a time. That's, yeah, that's interesting that you bring that word up. That's something that's actually explicitly in the solicitation is creativity in integrating your education and your research. And the uh, one of the program officers was talking about that they actually get some flack from like their legal and, and higher up about that word creativity because it's kind of ambiguous, mm-hmm. right? But it's there. So <laughs> so you kind of have to I, do I it. I think that, that makes it challenging. Yeah, it's something you're being evaluated on. Is this creative enough? So then you also have to think about what other people find creative and sell it because it's all about selling it, right? You yeah. can have a great idea, but if you stink at selling, not going to happen. Exactly. Yeah. Which is, I think, gets back to when I wish Jeff were here, right? But hustling. Always got to be hustling. That's right. Yeah, so we've talked yep. a little bit about, you know, what what types of grants are out there, especially at the, you know, at the NSF level, which is, is natural. I mean, they are probably the most, the single most important funding agency for ecology. And this is an ecology podcast. Um, I was just, you know, I think it'd be it'd be missing an opportunity for us to gripe uh, if we didn't mention the state of funding these days. And one yeah. of the things that ha- that brings that to mind um, is the recent announcement by uh, NSF DEB that the doctoral dis- dissertation improvement grant program or DDIG uh, has been discontinued. Uh, this is a, yeah. a, a program that is explicitly for uh, PhD students uh, designed to increase independence and um, help students do kind of synergistic work that moves beyond sort of their standard, you know, three or four chapter dissertation and really um, develop uh, a project that is, you know, very much their own and um, very much builds off of the work that um, forms the core of their PhD. So I think it's a big loss. It's a huge loss. I absolutely agree. I, you know, and you think about it, it also, the, one of the key things of that program was that it needed to be building on what you were doing, but moving in a way or in a direction that there wasn't funding or support at your home institution for doing that research. And so it was an excellent way, like you said, to be independent. And to be working on things beyond what your advisor was doing or helping fund or thinking about. And I think it's a huge loss for our community. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree with that. Did you, did you read the, the Dear Colleague letter, Grace? I have not read it in full yet. What it's, what are some of the highlights? Well, so one of the things that, you know, kind of got me thinking was that, I, you know, the, the purported decision reason behind this decision is more about the, the difficulty of administering the program than explicitly about cuts to funding or anything like that. And, um, yeah, I was wondering... You know, if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah, you know, and and that's unfortunate. And perhaps that really does play a big role. D-Digs have their own separate panel. Um, I think they get, I I don't know, but my guess would be hundreds of submissions every year. And so that is a lot of work to be evaluating every single one of those proposals with the merit review process. But, um, and, and these are not my words. This is a colleague I was talking to about this today. You know, she said, I have to believe that if they had said, hey, this is getting really hard, our community would have been there in a very real way. Yes, we will do, you know, virtual panels are a possibility, things like Mm -hmm. that. People would have would done that to maintain this program. And so um, 
I would like to think that the program officers and the directorate spent as much time as they possibly could and really ran down those possibilities if administration was really such an issue and if it was because of the anything the community could have done. I hope they ran that down first. But I also got to believe it's got to be about funding too. Yeah, I mean, I think that's got to be in the back of, of everybody's mind right now. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty and... You know, even if, uh, you know, even if Trump, the Trump budget is not what ultimately uh, becomes the nation's budget, you've got to think that um, we're at least, you know, going to experience more years of stagnant funding, um, if not, if not cuts. No, oh, absolutely. Um, you know, and I, I guess as, uh, this was the head of one of the directorates said on Monday, um, they were talking about NSF appropriations and kind of just paused and went, it's a political process. So good luck. (laughs) Like they're in the same quandary that we are as well. And I, I think that gets back to that, um, regardless about how you felt about the March for Science or politicizing science, things like science funding are a political process. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a great reason to stand up and say something and get active. Yeah, so, I mean, I I know that we're, you know, beyond DDIG eligibility, thank goodness. Um, (laughs) But, you know... do things like that change your approach to what types of grants that you're seeking out? Things like the DDIG going away? Yeah, and, and sort of like the, you know, the larger political climate around science funding. Yeah, well, I, I think it's made me think really seriously about diversifying as much as possible and um, seek out conversations about how to approach private funding sources, which have their own issues, right? Uh, merit reviews maybe not as much of a thing, or it's who you know, or rubbing elbows with. But um, yeah, and I, I think that's part of what's also pushing me more towards uh, putting a water quality bend on a lot of the things that I'm doing, because mm-hmm. water quality is still a big issue right now. Jeff, you're back. Water quality! <laughs> hey, Dr. Jeff Atkins. How you doing? Apparently UVA has not taken enough overhead because the... <laughs> <laughs> so. It's cool. I went to process some samples, and then I check, I'd been checking my phone every minute, and I saw that the network was back up, so I ran back in here. Nice. So. Well, we had... What, I'm, what I we missed. Were just, we had just mourned the loss of D-Dig. And we're t- talking yeah. about how the funding and political climate maybe changes our grant strategy. You guys, uh, do you have an answer to that strategy yet? Well, I was, <laughs> like, what I was saying diversify, but I, um, we haven't heard from John yet. Yeah, what you yeah, got to? Yeah, well, I mean, I kind of agree with the diversification strategy. I think that there are some, you know, some... You know, every everybody's you know um, scientific program has you know is going to have certain strengths and weaknesses as far as that type of stuff goes. Um, yeah, you know, I wouldn't be a good person to seek out water quality grants, um, but you know. I, you know, I do things on insect outbreaks and, uh, you know, species conservation and stuff like that. Um, and so I've, you know, I've been fairly successful at, you know, casting proposals in that light, even though a lot of the things that really get me going are, you know, kind of theoretical and, uh, you know, building uh and extending approaches to try and answer new questions uh, or answer old questions better uh, with, you know, with theory and and with statistics. 
Absolutely. And I think, you know, that's kind of an important, you're getting at an important point there in that NSF is not a mission-oriented agency. It is basic science. But some of these other agencies are mission-oriented. And so, like, right there, I think what you're talking about with um, species outbreaks or um, insect outbreaks and species diversity and conservation and, you know, like, there's other ways that you can go after that mission-oriented dollar. Yeah, and and I think that one of the challenges, though, is that at least for ecology, and and maybe this is different if you're doing, uh, you know, disease or, you know, epidemiological kind of things with an ecology ecology bent and can go after NIH type of stuff. But, you know, a lot of... A lot of times, you know, the NSF is still going to be for a lot of people, the biggest grants that they can get in terms of dollar amounts. Um, and so a, a challenge, I think, and a source of uncertainty for a lot of ecologists is going to be, you know, well, how do we piece together, um, you know, a set of smaller dollar amount grants and weave those together, you know, both in terms of getting done the science that they want Uh, But also just the logistics of, you know, how do I keep my students funded? How do I keep my lab running? It's a challenge. Some days more than others. Some days more than others. So so that's something I wanted to bring up on this is we talked a lot about, you know, kind of the NSF, like the big dollars. Um, But what are some other kind of areas, say you're young grad student or even undergrad and you're looking at you know small projects or you know augmentation to your own research kind of places where are the small places that you recommend for people to look in particular or even even if you're you know just early career just other places where there's a little bit of money well i think as a undergraduate or a graduate student one of the best places you can submit is sigma xi um that's a a good proposal. It can be a nice sum of money. It's a, it's a good one to focus on. It's open to both undergraduates and graduate students. Mm-hmm. Um, join a scientific society because they often have research grants. Definitely. And, yeah. you know, if you have a study system that is even remotely charismatic or, um, you know, management relevant, there, there's probably a group of people that are interested in your science. And sometimes there's small local organizations that don't necessarily have, you know, a formal, you know, grant application review process. But, you know, if you get plugged in and talk to the right people, there might be a way to come up with some money or, you know, some, some in-kind support. Um, you know, there's a lot of ways to do it. Um, you know, there, some people have had success crowdfunding smaller projects recently. Um, I don't really have any experience with that though. Do you guys? No, I, I, I've actually talked to Jacqueline Gill at the University of Maine, who she's in the midst of doing a large crowdfunding project right now with one of her students to go look at um, paleoecology in Jamaica. And um, she was open, I think, actually, to talking about it at some point. And she's had quite some success with this in the past, too. Yeah. I, I've never done it. Um, I wouldn't even know where to start. No, although I think there are some organizations, in addition to, you know, sort of the more traditional Kickstarter crowdfunding sort of opportunities, there are even organizations that run those kinds of campaigns as well. Yeah. And, hey, whatever dollars you get, if you're one of our top five earners, we give you X amount more um, oh, as cool. a way of doing their, their grants. Um, yeah, it's, that would be an interesting conversation to have with, with Jacqueline Gill, I think. Um, as you were saying that, John, oh, that reminded ja- me, there's also, like, um, recreational organizations. So like PADI, which is the uh, a scuba diving, International Scuba Diving Association, they actually have a foundation and they fund aquatic research. Cool. 
Yeah. So there, but yeah, that's there's groups. Yeah, you know, National Geographic um, has Explorer grants. They have early career grants. They've actually recently changed or removed the age limit on their early career uh, grant. Uh, REI, the you know, recreation company, they have grants. They support a lot of research, a lot of educational research type stuff too. Um, and John, you bring up regional societies. You know, there's like the Garden Club of America. Oh yeah. Um, I know here in the Mid Atlantic, the Dominion Power. Um, you know, say what you want to about Dominion Power. They actually do give a considerable amount of money towards research and education as well. Um, there's kind of like, um, you know, the Potomac Area Trail Club has supported research. The Appalachian Stewardship Foundation. Uh, you know, I had a grant from them when I was in grad school. You know, there's places around. I can't speak for, you know, whatever region of the country you're in. But, you know, there's definitely places out there and, you know, you got to hustle. Yeah, and you know, and if you're having a hard time finding those opportunities, usually at an institution there is a grants manager or some type of person who might be keeping track of these things, and can help you look for them. True story. So, so did you guys get into actual wording on grants, like writing? Uh, a little bit. Uh, we talked, I guess, okay. a, a little bit about that and how um, really reflecting on what's in the solicitation is very important and reflecting on what the review criteria are, so making it easy on the reviewers. Mm, okay, cool. I didn't want to revisit something because it already comes in. Excellent. That could be a whole slew of other podcasts, actually. Uh, but uh, one thing, you may have mentioned this while I was gone, but the, the Deb has a blog that they run that is amazing. Yeah. And really, really, really helpful. So this is a resource. I'll throw that out there. And if we haven't beat it into the ground enough, Ecolog, the listserv, you should be on that. <laughs> so. uh, as far as finding grants, there's a relatively new service called Instrumental. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, I've heard of that. And th there's like a, a free basic sign up uh, and you basically just you know plug in a little bit of information about the type of work that you do I think you might have to write a short description of your research or if like me you just copy and paste some text from a recent grant that you wrote and <laughs> uh, you know just uh, basically um, you know it kind of uses those words to match you with grants in their database um, and I've been I've been kind of lurking on this for a while it'll you know send you email updates and stuff like that and I don't know that it's tremendously specific uh, like I had you know some conservation oriented language in whatever, you know, text I put in. And so I've been, you know, it's been sending me a lot of grants that are, you know, for like conservation restoration projects, not for, you know, research explicitly. Uh, so it's yeah. not perfect. But the cool thing about it is that I have seen a bunch of grants come across that, that I wasn't aware of before. Um, you know, they're especially private money. Uh, that can be a little bit yeah. harder, I think, to, you know, to track down once you get past, you know, the, you know, famous, you know, big foundations and stuff like that, that, you know, early career ecologists probably never, ever show up on the radar of. Um you know, you're going to get that MacArthur Genius Grant any day now, John. Uh, yeah, I'm. I believe in you. I believe in me too, but maybe not that much. <laughs> I believe that one day I will have a conversation with a MacArthur Genius Grant winner. That sounds you know good. Any MacArthur Genius Grant? Yeah, winners? no. See, exactly. That's one of my goals to meet one. That's a that's a livable goal. Yeah. 
I like that. I've had dinner with a Nobel Prize winner, but that's it. That's the closest I've got. What did you ask this person? Uh, we talked about all kinds of things, but it was uh, Dennis Ojima over Colorado State, which I, which I mean, he is, but like it was part of the IPCC thing, right? So there was like fifteen hundred of them. <laughs> so, oh, like he's still a laureate, but you know, yeah. <laughs> so. Oh man, do you guys have any closing thoughts on Grant? Anything further to add? From the two thirds of the conversation I heard, I thought it was great. <laughs> I give us an A plus for this episode already. No, I just uh, my closing thought on grants is I hope I get the one that's due next weekend. Woo! Yeah. Yeah. Good luck. Uh, I guess my closing thought is that um, start early. Right, like. Grant writing really is a skill, and um, so it takes a lot of practice, like just about any other skill. Um, but it's also a skill that tends to build on itself in very f- fundamental ways, because you know the way that our, our system is set up right now. You know, yes, if you already have you know, six other grants, NSF might not want to give you another one concurrent to all of those. But, you know, we, we're in a you know position where success breeds more success. And, you know, if you can show the ability to get grants and uh, tangible products from them, then you become more likely to get more grants. And that is a good thing. Um, and there's a lot of opportunities as a graduate student um, to, and as an undergraduate, for that matter, um, to, to develop those skills and to demonstrate that you have the ability um, to get grants. And I think as you get further and further into your career, the the opportunities get fewer and the competition becomes greater and so if you can get that leg leg up um, early on and get some successes and develop those grant writing skills then i think that that is a very good thing yeah like you're in grad school go for those small grants those little regional things it just builds on itself and it just shows you have a ability to do that that's right get dollars get dollars popping bottles bottles. hustle all day long (laughs) (laughs) tell me there's something there um do we have any other announcements or anything else we want to add no i don't think so simply please keep listening please tell your friends about us and you can find us where jeff so you can find us, um, you can email us at majorrevisionsshow at gmail.com. You can visit us on the web at majorrevisions.weebly.com. And major underscore revisions on Twitter. Um, I do want to take a moment to uh, welcome two new members or two new family members to the Extended Laser Quest family, which is my lab group's um, name. Not our real name, but it's become the name because we all shoot lasers at trees. But we have a, a new uh, little member of the Dolan family up in Michigan State and a new member of the Stovall family here in Charlottesville. Oh, fantastic. So we're excited to have both of them. Yeah, uh, little Stovall was a wee bit early, so he's still in the hospital, but doing well. Good job. Um, so, yeah. Um, on a personal note for me, just for listeners, if you're out there and you were ever into reading anything at all, um, a family friend of ours, uh, Catherine Stripling Byer, who was the former North Carolina Poet Laureate, passed away kind of suddenly this week. Um, and if you are not familiar with her work, I highly recommend that you read some poetry this week. So, just wanted to throw that out there, because she was awesome. So, yeah, so with that, thank you guys for listening, and we hope that you continue to do so. Have a great day. Bye. Until next time, guys. Enjoy it. Thank you.
a section in the club. Give me a rose. William already said go. Okay. Get that bottle, man. It ain't gonna die. Everybody bounce a bottle.